This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single-line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. In the 1850s, America was struggling. Carpenters couldn't keep up with the daily influx of immigrants. A housing shortage loomed. Epidemics like smallpox and cholera and the lack of jobs further sent the country into a depression. Children whose parents died from one of the many diseases running rampant found themselves orphaned. Sometimes families who didn't want or couldn't afford their children abandoned them. Of the 500,000 New York City residents at the time, it's estimated that 30,000 were houseless children. Kids sold rags, matches, or newspapers to survive. Some worked in factories. Others who joined street gangs were frequently arrested and put into the same jails as adults. Some of these children were just five years old. There were orphanages, but not enough. And they rarely provided the education or care children needed. One Charles Loring Brace, a Protestant minister, thought orphanages amounted to little more than warehouses and wanted more for the kids. In 1853, he founded the Children's Aid Society. He provided basic schooling and religious education, along with teaching kids a trade. Unfortunately, the Children's Aid Society didn't have room for all the houseless children. Determined to save more kids, Brace came up with another solution— in 1853, he began sending orphans to farms in New York, Pennsylvania, and Connecticut. He hoped the children would find homes with families where they had a better chance of survival and a more promising future. The solution cost more than the Children's Aid Society could afford. Undaunted, he began a fundraising campaign with the wealthiest city residents. The fundraiser was a success, and the trains carrying orphans branched out to other cities in the Midwest. 
When the orphan train pulled into southwestern Michigan in 1854, 37 of the 45 children on board found new homes. The last eight found homes in Iowa. Between 1855 and 1875, an average of 3,000 children a year rode the trains. Once they arrived at their destinations, a chaperone led them to gathering places where couples selected children from the group. In a way, the process resembled a livestock auction. The new parents signed documents promising to care for and feed the children. In exchange, the kids understood that they had to help work on the farms. While some children found loving homes, others were taken to become manual laborers. When he was just eight years old, Elliot boarded a train heading to Arkansas. All he had were the clothes he wore and a small cardboard box that held everything he owned. He had been removed from his abusive and alcoholic father, and as he sat on the train watching the scenery go past his window, it felt like he had his entire future ahead of him. Elliot refused to go with the first man who selected him, but eventually found a home with a great family. A fellow orphans like Andrew Burke and John Brady even went on to become governors. These three were among the lucky ones. The society didn't vet potential parents, and siblings were often separated. No provisions were made for the adopted children if their new parents died, often rendering them houseless again. The orphan trains ran for 75 years. The Children's Aid Society was far from perfect, but it rescued thousands of kids from life on the streets and paved the way for the foster care system. Charles Brace had the children's best interests at heart, but others did not. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. It started with flu-like symptoms. Kate Bionda kept working, though it wasn't easy. Running a restaurant was difficult enough, but being sick in a sweltering Tennessee summer made it that much worse. The sickness progressed from August 1st until August 13th of 1878. Kate died, becoming the first victim of yellow fever in Memphis. Previously, the disease had only struck New Orleans, no one understood how yellow fever spread, so they quarantined anyone afflicted. Of course, people continued to fall ill. It had first arrived in New Orleans on an incoming ship, the Charles B. Wood. The captain and engineer's families all fell ill. They survived. Unfortunately, a four-year-old girl living nearby did not. Yellow fever reached epidemic proportions in New Orleans on August 10th of that year. The city reported 431 cases and 118 deaths. Doctors couldn't find a cure. The go-to treatments of bloodletting and carbolic acid didn't work. A fifth of the city's residents fled. When the news reached Memphis, the mayor shut down the train lines and put the city under quarantine. But lawsuits brought on by local business owners forced officials to reopen the trade routes. It's possible that the trains brought the mosquitoes to Memphis or, at the least, that they brought people already infected with yellow fever. The mosquitoes that bit them spread the disease to others. The city's swampy environs with high summer heat and humidity made for the perfect mosquito breeding ground. When Kate Bionda died, newspapers were quick to report cases and deaths. City officials tried to calm the public, despite the growing death toll. Within a single day in August, Memphis recorded 73 deaths. In September, the average death toll rose to 200 a day. Funeral bells rang almost constantly. Residents fled Memphis by the thousands. When the first frost came, yellow fever cases dropped as the mosquitoes died. 
By the end of the year, Memphis had recorded 17,000 cases and 5,000 deaths, leaving the city in financial ruin. Throughout the Southeast, 80,000 people had become infected. Of those, 20,000 didn't survive. Still believing the disease spread from human contact, or possibly a lack of sanitary conditions, the city embarked on a massive cleanup. People became more interested in public health practices, and Memphis began a slow process of recovery. Those most affected by the epidemic were the children, many of whom lost one or both parents to yellow fever. Men and women who lost a spouse had difficulty making ends meet, and it wasn't uncommon for single parents to send their children to a relative or an orphanage. Children without known relatives who lost both parents had no one to care for them. As difficulties rose, more were abandoned. Forced to find a way to support themselves, older children searched for jobs. Farmhands and factory workers took in kids as cheap labor in exchange for food and a place to sleep. Child labor in the United States peaked in the early 20th century. Back then, factory owners often preferred children. They had no rights or protections regarding violence or safety in the workplace. Kids were also considered more manageable than their adult counterparts, and far less likely to strike. Adoption in the 1800s worked differently than it does today. There actually was no official method of conducting an adoption. No paperwork, no court cases, and no way of tracking the adopted kids. Society's stigma on unwed mothers complicated the problem. Women were pressured to place children born out of wedlock with orphanages or give them up for adoption in order to save their and their child's reputations. Adoptive parents chose infants over older kids, preferring to raise a child who had no memory of or ties to a previous family. Children from low-income families, or those who weren't white, were far less likely to find homes. When the Adoption of Children Act went into effect in 1851, courts became more active in a child's well-being. Charities and private homes provided some care. Eventually, these came under government control, though they retained certain freedoms in terms of a child's treatment or placement in a new home. The Sisters of St. Mary opened a school in 1874. When the yellow fever epidemic hit in 1878, they stayed while most clergymen fled the city. Authorities asked them to take over the Canfield Asylum for Orphans. Eager to help, the sisters took in 50 children in four days. Edward Crump knew all too well the ravages of yellow fever. The disease took his father during the outbreak in 1878, leaving his mother to support him and his two siblings. While she managed to keep the family together, they struggled. To keep afloat, the children pitched in however they could. None of them wanted to be separated from each other or their mother. At 14, Crump dropped out of school to find work. At 17, he left Mississippi and relocated to Memphis. He couldn't have arrived at a worse time. The city was in a deep recession, and Crump had very little to his name. His earlier life and struggles influenced him to work hard and better himself, and he eventually found employment as a clerk. In his free time, he joined social clubs to seek out contacts that might further his political aspirations. In 1902, he wed his sweetheart, Bessie, a daughter of a prominent socialite. With his father-in-law's help, Crump purchased a saddle and harness company. The company was successful, but after eight years, he sold the business and dove headfirst into his true calling, politics. His hard work and dedication paid off. Crump became the city mayor in 1910, 
he worked to clean up the city's sanitation issues. In addition, he became a staunch supporter of the fire service, helping to create a state-of-the-art fire department. Sometime in the early 1920s, Crump met one Georgia Tan. He quickly became an avid supporter of her work in child services. For all the good he'd done for the city, his connection with Georgia would remain a dark spot on his reputation. It might have looked like Georgia had the children's best interests at heart, but she had different motivations. Unlike Crump, Georgia grew up living a charmed life. She was born Beulah George Tan in Philadelphia, Mississippi in 1891. Her father, George, was a respected judge, and her mother, Beulah, had been a well-educated schoolteacher. George ruled absolute over the household and demanded that his wishes take priority over everything else. If Judge Tan decided something needed doing, there was no discussion. The task must be done quickly and to his liking. So when he decided that his daughter would become a pianist, Georgia threw herself into practice, even though she despised playing. She wanted to become a lawyer, but her father scoffed. He didn't think law was a suitable occupation for women. He had made up his mind, and in 1913, he sent her to Martha Washington College to major in music. Despite her father's wishes, Georgia took the bar exam and passed. Though a few women had successfully practiced law in the United States, Georgia decided on a different career path, a one her father found more acceptable for women of the day, social work. There was a conflict, though. Georgia firmly believed that wealthy people were far superior to the poor, and she thought lower-class individuals shouldn't have children, mainly because they lacked the money to adequately provide for them. Her first job as a social worker was in 1922 at the Mississippi Children's Home Society. Georgia took her bias too far, and her superiors fired her for removing children from poor households without cause. Georgia moved to Memphis to take advantage of her father's business connections there. She took an executive secretary position at the Tennessee Children's Home Society. In the 1920s, references were used instead of background checks, and no one at the society looked into her past. There, Georgia settled into domestic life with partner Anne Atwood, who had moved with her. They had two children, an infant son Anne had had out of wedlock, and Georgia's adopted daughter. We don't know whether their relationship was romantic, because same-sex relationships were so frowned upon, but domestic partnerships between women weren't entirely uncommon. A polite society reframed such pairings as Boston marriages. For two years, Georgia relentlessly used her connections to further her career until she had complete control over the society. Finally, at the top, Georgia focused on her true goal, gaining money and power by trafficking children. Georgia knew intimidation worked, when she entered poor neighborhoods, she wore crisp, heavily starched, long-sleeved shirts and a full-length skirt. Her position at the school and her father's connections ensured she received little opposition from authorities. She also made her own connections, namely former mayor Edward Crump. Though he no longer held office, he still had plenty of influence and power in Memphis. When complaints about George's practices rolled in, Crump helped to change Tennessee's adoption laws in her favor— one Abe Waldauer, who had served under Crump, became George's attorney and the attorney for the Tennessee Children's Home Society. While other homes were required to get licenses, Georgia and Waldauer refused. With their connections, the laws simply didn't apply to them. 
a license would have cost money and cut into their profits. Each adoption would have cost an additional $7. Georgia charged up to $5,000 per adoption. With so much money to be made, those connected to the society's adoptions had motivation to hide the scheme. Georgia had plenty of high-powered people in her pocket, from politicians and police chiefs to the underworld. She became so successful that Waldauer often referred to the orphans as the merchandise. Acquiring new children was easy. All Georgia had to do was visit low-income housing districts. She often sweet-talked poor families out of their kids or told the family that she had to remove the child due to a complaint, even if no such complaint had been filed. Scouts helped to keep an eye out for attractive and healthy kids, preferably those who were white with blonde hair and blue eyes. Scouts sometimes stole these children from their yards or daycare, or kidnapped them from churches or homes. Georgia drove through poor neighborhoods looking for the most attractive kids and offered them a ride in her fancy car. Then she'd whisk them away to the society, where they'd never see their parents again. Unwed mothers made easy targets, and Georgia's scouts kept an eye out for them, too, especially at hospitals and prisons. Without support from the fathers or the state, the women often accepted her offer of help. She would offer to pay for medical treatment for sick kids and take them to the hospital for care. When women tried to collect their children, Georgia presented them with an enormous bill. When the mother couldn't pay, the child was taken away and placed in Georgia's care. In another tactic, Georgia would offer an unwed mother a temporary place to keep her kids while she found a home or a job. Once the mother finally established herself and tried to collect her children, she was told they'd been adopted. The mother had no recourse. Part of the laws Crump helped form were sealed adoptions. Hospital maternity wards also became a favorite place to find kids. While new mothers were still sedated, Georgia asked them to sign routine paperwork. The paperwork turned out to be adoption papers. The society merely served as a temporary holding station. Conditions were deplorable. Infants were drugged to keep them from crying. Neglect and abuse were common, and the children were kept entirely indoors. They received little to no medical treatment or schooling. Over 500 kids died in her care. Georgia paid for advertisements in newspapers from New York to Los Angeles. Children were auctioned to the highest bidder. She took great care to ensure most children were adopted out of state. Actress Joan Crawford adopted twins Kathy and Cynthia. Film stars June Allison and her husband Dick Powell adopted a son. New York Governor Herbert Lehman, who also signed a law sealing adoption records in his state, adopted a kid from the home. Between 1924 and 1950, Georgia arranged over 5,000 adoptions. Older children's birth certificates were altered to make them more adoptable and to prevent birth parents from finding them. The end finally came when Crump's nemesis, Gordon Browning, became governor. In 1950, Browning learned about the trafficking from an investigator. On September 12th of that year, Browning stood before the press and disclosed the horrors behind the Tennessee Children's Home Society and the charges against Georgia Tan. Three days later, Georgia died from undiagnosed cancer. Those working alongside her quietly resigned, and no one else was ever charged. One evening in 1990, Alma Sippel sat down after a long day to enjoy a few TV shows. After flipping through the channels, she decided to watch NBC's popular program, Unsolved Mysteries. 
The show had a large following, and people enjoyed helping solve cold cases. At the end of each show, host Robert Stack asked for the audience's help and gave them a hotline to call with any information that might bring killers and other criminals to justice, or help locate missing persons. It was late, and Alma was sleepy. But when a woman's face splashed across the screen, she jolted upright and let out a scream. The woman's smug features had been etched in her memory, and the woman in the photo had stolen her daughter decades before. Back in 1946, Alma lived in a one-room apartment with her toddler son and infant daughter. She was just another young mother struggling to make ends meet. A woman claiming to be from the Tennessee Children's Home Society visited her, insisting a neighbor had filed a complaint of child abuse. Stunned, Alma allowed the woman in to show that the children were perfectly fine, though Irma had fallen slightly ill. The woman took special interest in little Irma, a beautiful child with reddish blonde curls and cute dimples. Alma recalled how calm and confident the woman was, how she seemed concerned over Irma's health. She offered to take Irma to the doctor, which required Alma to sign papers granting permission to the society. Without money to pay for a doctor, Alma agreed, and then the woman swept up her baby daughter and left. Alma arrived at Memphis General a few days later and watched Irma sleeping peacefully. When she tried to take her daughter home, the hospital told her that Irma belonged to the society. She called the home over and over for days until Georgia finally answered. Alma sat in stunned silence when Georgia coldly told her that little Irma had died from complications of pneumonia. Alma couldn't believe it. Her daughter had been fine just days before. Georgia told her that the city had buried Irma in an unmarked grave and hung up. For years, Alma searched for a grave that might be her daughter's. Now, sitting in her chair, she paid close attention to Robert Stack. He asked potential victims to come forward and contact Tennessee's Right to Know agency. Alma called immediately. Months later, Danny Glad, the volunteer agency's president, contacted her. Not only was Irma still alive, but had also found her adoption papers, though the address for the adoptive parents was blank. Alma's heart fell. It looked like a dead end. Then an independent searcher found her. Irma, now Sandra Kimbrell, was in Cincinnati, working as a registered nurse. When Alma contacted her, Sandra was somewhat surprised. While she knew she was adopted, she had no idea she'd been stolen as a baby. The two talked for hours and began to plan their reunion. Alma and her daughter were fortunate. We may never honestly know how many families Georgia Tan destroyed. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so 
so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day, as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you, something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. It's normal for parents to worry about how their kids will turn out as adults. Even more normal to wonder if children are shaped more by nature or nurture. The debate has gone on for decades. How much of a child's personality is formed by treatment and environment, and how much is influenced by genetics? In the 1980s, it seemed that parents and researchers just might get some answers. Robert Schaffron spent his first year at a college in upstate New York. He wondered why people often acted as though they knew him. He quickly learned that he resembled another student named Eddie Galland. Eddie supposedly could have passed for his twin. Though Eddie no longer went to the same school, Robert was intrigued. He tracked down an address and went to visit his doppelganger. Eddie answered, and the two stared at each other. It was as though the men were looking into a mirror. They shared the same build and facial features. They had identical complexions and the same dark hair. A quick comparison of birthdays revealed that they were both born on July 12th of 1961. Eddie and Robert knew that they had been adopted, but had no idea that they were twins. The stranger-than-fiction story spread across the country. The people were fascinated and wanted to know how two identical twins had randomly come into contact with each other. They'd grown up just hours apart. The story seemed unbelievable, but it was about to get weirder. Miles away, at another college, Student David Kelman couldn't believe the photo in the paper. He stared at the two men, who looked exactly like him. After reading the story, he immediately tracked down Eddie Gallen's home phone number. And Mrs. Galland answered and heard what sounded like her son's voice. She was astounded to learn that her son, who she had no idea had one brother, now had two. In 1961, a teenage girl had given birth to three boys at Hillside Hospital in New York. She gave them up for adoption, and the triplets were taken to the Louise Wise Services Adoption Agency. The boys were separated while living at the agency for the next six months. Three couples, living less than 100 miles apart, each applied to adopt a child. The agency told the parents that the infant they were interested in was part of a study on childhood development. They were also led to believe that promising to comply with future visits would increase the chances that they'd be selected to adopt. For 10 years, Dr. Peter Neubauer and his assistants visited the families several times a year. After the study ended, researchers have suggested that Neubauer and his team still monitored the children from a distance. And during the initial visits, Neubauer and his staff performed cognitive tests. The boys were asked to draw and solve puzzles and answer questions while assistants filmed the visit. The parents were also questioned. It turned out that each of the boys often banged their heads against the bars in their cribs. The families learned that the adoption agency, which had since shuttered its doors, had been part of the study. They assisted Neubauer in placing the triplets into three families, each with a different economic status. 
The three brothers exchanged stories of their childhood and teen years. David and Eddie had spent time in psychiatric hospitals. Robert was on probation stemming from his connection to a murder and robbery in 1978. The boys weren't the only children in Dr. Neubauer's study on nature versus nurture. He ran similar experiments on sets of twins, none of whom randomly came into contact with their siblings. All the twins had been separated in the name of research. Academics and the affected families have so many questions, but no one will see Dr. Neubauer's research results anytime soon. Yale has all of his papers locked in a vault until 2066, long after everyone involved in the study will no longer be living. Neubauer died in 2008. His study remains controversial. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmandMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Since every minute counts when you're a new parent, who wants to waste time washing bottles? Transform this daily chore with the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro, the first machine that automatically washes, sterilizes, and dries bottles, pump parts, and sippy cups at the push of a button. Its 20 spray jets clean everything 100%. Plus, it sterilizes with steam, then dries with germ-free air. Don't waste time on tedious handwashing. Let the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro do it for you. Shop now at babybretza.com. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at gainbridge.io. Visit gainbridge.io/parityflex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.